Every once in a span called a while, I think about this show and I say with a smile, some guests are pros, some kind of shy, but they're all big pieces of our American pie. This is Spectrum West. I'm Al Ross, popping into your day with news, views, and personalities engaged in the abundant arts, culture, and humanities of western Wisconsin. This week, American Pie, the hit song, is 50 years old, and we'll talk about the date, this date, May 26th, when it was recorded 51 years ago. Producer Ed Freeman and writer-singer Don McClain are here. We'll recall the life of the late Judy Henske, pride of Chippewa Falls, by reliving parts of last October's conversation with her. And then we'll get to know her husband and musician, Craig Durge. And we have two art tours coming up next weekend. The 28th Art Opener in the St. Croix Valley. Artist Charlotte Schuld checks in with details. And let's begin with the 24th annual Fresh Art Tour, encompassing a whole herd of artists and locations along and within the Mississippi and Chippewa River Valleys. Gary Chris Christofferson works from his creative perch just above Nelson, Wisconsin, and he's here as spokesman for that tour. Well, the brave artist who consents to talk on the radio, of course, gets to tout his or her talent. And in your case, our audience has been introduced to your interesting artistic endeavors. Tell us how your work is evolving, because I know that your sculptures are intentionally meaningful and often carry a message. Yes, in these tumultuous times, art like mine, which is very heavily focused on message and themes, uh, has followed that very carefully and responded to it. There's a sculpture that's sitting in, in my house, a very abstract sculpture. Some see it as the sun, but it is actually a microscopic image of the COVID SARS virus. Colorful and open to a lot of interpretation. Obviously, what's going on right now in Ukraine Art speaks to that, especially my kind of art. So I just finished two brand new pieces. Uh, one is called End Oppression. The second piece called Persevere. But as you know, Al, from the kind of work I do, mm-hmm. the themes I create are not just specifically for that particular context, but it have much broader meaning than just what's happening today. It's interesting stuff. So let's move on to the 24th annual Fresh Art Spring Tour happening Friday through Sunday, June 3rd, 4th, 5th, from 10 to 5 each day in Pepin, Pierce, and Buffalo counties. There's a little verse that greets the reader on the brochure. It goes like this, take the slow route to woodland and meadow, to the glorious great river, to our heritage and our art. The uh, Fresh Art Spring Tour includes 17 locations, and because of that, we don't have time to list all of them, and I suggest people go online to look them over and figure out their route. The website is freshart.org. Nine of those 17 locations are sporting demonstrations. How about your location? Well, of course, Al. Oh, okay. the, uh, uh, the studio, which is in the lower part of an old historic barn, there will be sculptures in process, and there'll be a chance for people to talk with me about how art gets created. You get a chance to meet the artists in their creative spaces. New art has been created since the last fall tour, and we've got even guest artists this time, including with me, Kathleen Vina, a pastel artist and also a former state senator. Ah, I was going to ask about guests because I noticed them in the brochure, and I wondered if they were artistic guests are just interesting people because I did not know that Kathleen Vinehout was dabbling in art now. 
She's a developing artist, a lot of potential. She and I are doing some work together. There are several other artists, guest artists. They bring their own particular art to complement what's going on in the rest of that particular site. So it adds more richness to the whole tour. I think it's safe to say with 17 locations and all the artists involved, your tour probably includes just about every artistic medium. Hmm? Oh, absolutely. So so you're seeing jewelry, you're seeing sculpture, you're seeing pastel, you're seeing acrylic paintings. You're going to see a whole wide range of different media. Of course, each artist brings their own touch to not only what the media is, but then how they interpret it. Whatever your interest might be, you're probably going to find at least three, four, five sites that will particularly interest you. Just so I can give our audience a a bit of a, a mental picture, the area in which your tour sits is sort of a trapezoidal box from Nelson in the, the southeast up to the thriving metropolis of Ernie, and then up to Durand, then northwesterly through Arkansas, Plum City, and Ellsworth down to Bay City along the Mississippi River, southeasterly again through Maiden Rock, Stockholm, and Pepin, and then you can go back to Nelson if you want to complete our trapezoid, plus uh, some locations locations within that box. And well put, Al. And I think one of the things about not only is the art, but the spaces themselves. So we've got one sitting on one of the rustic roads, another on a farm, two historic churches, a one-room schoolhouse, a log house, and of course my place, which is a restored set of farm buildings on a Mississippi River bluff side. Your brochure, it's very complete, and it includes uh, lodging stops, places to get food, other interesting places to stop. While you're motoring around, it is so complete It includes the dates of your fall tour and next year's spring tour. So you're really helping people plan ahead. We have to think ahead. They are self-guided tours. So you sort of pick and choose what you want to do. So when you go to freshart.org, which is the website, or the Facebook page, which is Fresh Art Tour, you get a chance to both see this, make your plans, pick your own tour, your own artist, and your own pace. It can be a marvelous three-day weekend if you want to make it that. Again, the websites are freshart.org and Chris com. Go there because we can only say so much and give you so much information in a conversation on the radio. You need to see some of what's there. Chris, thanks so much. Appreciate you uh, consenting to be in the hot seat. It's always fun, as a matter of fact. And yes, as you know, you've got one of my pieces there. Hanging in a stately manner from uh, a high ceiling in a wonderful room. Now, I look at it every day. Well, enjoy the spring. Embrace the art. And uh, maybe we'll see you on the tour. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Take care as well. Bye-bye. Yes, spring bursts with many things that come in many colors. And seasonal art tours are a large regional phenomenon everyone enjoys. Take your pick or take in a bit of all of them. Charlotte Schuld is an artist who works from Stillwater, Minnesota. She represents next weekend's Art Opener Tour in the St. Croix Valley. The annual Art Opener Studio Tour provides outstanding opportunity to visit an eclectic mix of artist studios nestled in the scenic St. Croix Valley from Afton Bayport in Stillwater, Minnesota to Hudson, Wisconsin. Your tour seems to be very doable. We'll get to the locations in a minute, but uh, let's talk about you as an artist, your background as an artist. Tell me about yourself. You paint. 
I do. Um, I am mainly a painter and I started out mostly with watercolor, but my work in the last 10 plus years have been in acrylics on canvas. I've also uh, kind of morphed into doing a lot of pastel paintings on canvas with a technique I found by accident that I've been developing. Mm. It gives some really unique textural looks, much like watercolor and totally touchable. It's not dusty, it's not going to smudge. It is varnished over, but a different look than the brush strokes of acrylic or oil painting. So it's been a fun adventure. Your studio is located where? I'm in Stillwater. My studio is in my home, working seriously in my studio. Nine locations, uh, but a total of 15 artists uh, at those locations. So obviously people are, yes. are sporting some guests. Your location will have a couple guests as well. Right. I have a printmaker and also a jewelry artist. I'm going to suggest people go to your tours website because it is one of the most active websites that I've seen, especially when you land on the home page. It is chock full of information. I mean, there are uh, the artists listed. There are photos. You can get websites of each artist and contact information, and the photos keep changing. It's a very impressive website. Your tour should be congratulated. Our webmaster is awesome. Brianna Sampson has been working with us this year, has an artist's eye for how to put together a website, which is unique for a person who is more digital. She's taken it to an art form. Also on this website, we have turn-by-turn -turn instructions because we still have guests who do not like or use GPS. They like the old-fashioned map, and so we have two maps, one where people could start in Wisconsin and work their way north, and one where they can start in Minnesota and work their way southeast. You can have, sitting next to you, a co-pilot. They could be the voice you're missing on the GPS. Absolutely. We're talking with Charlotte Schuld. She is one of the artists of the annual Art Opener Studio Tour, Friday, June 3rd, from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., then Saturday and Sunday, June 4th and 5th, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Any idea, Charlotte, how many there have been? What is this annual? This is, we believe, our 28th year, starting in 1994. We have an artist who remembers 1994, and I think that's pretty darn accurate. So our 28th year. Good for you. What's your history with it? This is my ninth year. Do you try to grow it every year, or do you, are you trying to keep it manageable? Are you always looking for new people? What do you do? We are always looking for new people because we want to be able to provide a variety of artists and art forms. We also want to keep it manageable. The nine or ten studio sites seems to be just an excellent balance. I talk to clients as they come in and ask, uh, where have you been? What are you planning to do? I've heard the whole gamut. We're doing the whole thing today. And then I've heard some people say, yesterday we did Wisconsin, today we're doing Minnesota. So they make a weekend of it. So by keeping it doable to one or two days, I think that's a really good thing. And we also decided to keep our range no further north than Marine hmm. and no farther southeast than River Falls. And studio sites have guest artists and bring in different art forms that provides wonderful visual treats. We've got five painters this year 
and they cover oil, acrylic, ink, pastel, and every painter has really uniquely different styles, so that's fun. The printmaker, we've got pottery, an awesome digital photographer this year, mm. jewelry, concrete art, fiber and sculptural art form, and we end up with a glass blower in River Falls. And it's not just artists sitting on a stool saying, hey, welcome to my studio. You, as I said at the beginning, are having some demonstrations, so artists will be working. We do that as much as we can. Many of the art forms are very time-consuming. For instance, a glass blower can't have his furnace all heated up unless he has an assistant there. Our pottery artists do often a raku firing. For myself, I've got a canvas on my easel where you can see it in different stages of work. We try to show how we go about making our art at every place. Well, thank you for being so visitor-friendly. Again, I'm going to urge people to go to the website, artopener.org. Can I give a shout-out to our sponsors, Lakefront Framing in Wisconsin and Bramer Bank and Valley Bookseller in Minnesota? And Mm -hmm. please like us on Facebook, Art Opener Visual Arts. 28th Annual Art Opener Studio Tour, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, June 3rd, 4th, and 5th. Charlotte, good luck on the tour. I hope you have carloads and busloads. Thank you. Remembering Judy Henske next, Later American Pie, the recording session on Spectrum West. I have the privilege of talking with, on your behalf, the not-so-famous, the not-yet-famous, and the wildly-famous. Judy Henske was the latter, but she didn't care about fame. She just wanted to sing, choose what to sing, write things to sing, and enjoy the game of life as long as it was played by her own rules. Judy grew up in Chippewa Falls and went on to a career of escapades and accolades. Her voice was silenced late last month, but we talked with Judy last October, and here is some of that priceless conversation. I not only didn't get to stay in school, I took off. I had a boyfriend at that time. He dumped me and left me his banjo. So I had learned to play the banjo because I had one. And I was the only woman at that time who was playing a banjo and singing at the same time. So I did very well in coffee houses. I went to Chicago, went to a coffee house. They said, okay, and I sang there. I only got like $15 a night, and I could live on it then. That's how old I am. Yeah, the little old lady from Pasadena. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not little. I'm really tall. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about those early gigs. And I can't help but to believe that you rubbed elbows with names that uh, might have become musically household. Did you run into anybody who became pretty huge and you just didn't know it at the time? I sang uh, on the same bill as Hoyt Axon. Do you remember him? Oh, sure. I thought he was really good. We sang at the Troubadour. I was never on a bill with women because... I just wasn't. Um, Bob Gibson was famous. I can't think of anybody else. Did you ever do New York? Sure. I uh, sang at the Village Gate, which was not a folk music club. It was much more a jazz club. And I was with famous jazz people. 
how about the the legends, you know, like Phil Oaks? Oh, I know Oaks really well. He was my best friend. He wasn't a folk singer, was he? Kind of. He just did his own stuff. Did you ever cross paths with uh, Seeger or Guthrie or any of those guys? No, but Phil Oaks was a really good friend of mine. I loved him very much, and I'm sorry that he got sick and then he was dead. What a drag that was. He didn't hang around long enough. No, he didn't. He was the funniest person I ever knew. He had the best sense of humor. He was just the best. If someone reads up on you, and I did a lot of it, plus I downloaded a bunch of your music. I love it. Oh, thank you. The legendary queen of the beats, they call you. Uh, Queen of the beatniks. They were kind of considered enlightened in ways. I mean, there was beat poets that were making names for themselves. I'm still trying to imagine this young lady who grew up in Chippewa Falls and her first exposure to that scene. Were you a little bit dumbfounded, or was that kind of natural for you? (laughs) No, I think I was a natural beatnik. I thought they were just about the smartest people around. If you were a beatnik, practically all you ever did was read. That's what I remember. It was the life of least danger. I spent more time at the library than anywhere else. What did you read? (laughs) When you're going to be something like a beatnik, then you can direct your education yourself. I thought I should learn philosophy. Now, there's nothing duller than sitting around reading philosophy. So I would cheat. I'd get a couple of philosophy books, and then I'd get joke books to fill out the rest of the five books you could take out of the library at one time. And that's the story of me. Philosophy and joke books. The philosophy lay there unread, Mm. and the joke books were gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Humor was a big part of your show. People loved the banter that you had between songs. Was that part of your act, or did that just come out? Well, if you have a brain in your head, (laughs) you're going to know that people are going to get really bored if you want to talk. And I wanted to talk. So I had lots of jokes. Sometimes I had jokes that I had read, or I had jokes that I made up myself which were pretty far out. I was out there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You were a beatnik. Well, yeah. What I wanted to do was talk. And and you did. I did. Let's talk about your songwriting. You know, you're given credit for being a prolific uh, songwriter. What did you write about? Philosophical stuff? (laughs) No. (laughs) I found out that the audience didn't respond to philosophy at all. (laughs) They responded to sex and death. They still do, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I know. That's what they like the best. If you've been on Amazon, you can buy an album or you can buy songs. And if you scroll down far enough, there are comments. There was one, does anybody wonder why this remarkable performer has managed to stay under the radar of the general public? I don't. Eclectic to a fault, unable to pigeonhole as her selections run the gamut. She has the ability to serenade sweetly and then turn on a dime and get low down and dirty. Yeah, that's true. Sharing an evening with one of the most underrated talents of our lifetime. These were all comments about the album that just had your name on it. That was my first one. Truly one of a kind. Tall, beautiful, frenetic, funny, witty, smart, and one heck of a good singer. Discovered this singer on YouTube viewing old Hootenanny videos. And then it ends by saying, sorry I missed you the first go-round, Judy. That's, uh, yeah, that's what happened, all right. Here's the thing. Mm -hmm. You don't get to do 
giant star. If you're a giant star, you don't get to do anything that you want. <laughs> you don't. I don't think so. But you did. I wasn't a star, and I got to do everything I wanted. That's why everybody's saying, oh, I'm eclectic and all that stuff. I guess that's true, but I got to do everything I ever wanted to do. And I certainly didn't want to be stuck on stage doing a bunch of stuff that I didn't want to sing. I never did anything I didn't want to do. And that was it. Never go and spread the Because your girlfriends will double-cross you, leave you with a Craig Durge is an amazing in-demand session keyboardist whose credits are too numerous to mention, but I have to drop some names to make the point. Crosby, Stills and Nash, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, Carly Simon, The Temptations, Donovan, Mimi Farina, Willie Nelson, Barbara Streisand, Lena Horne, and his songwriting was equally in-demand. He was a founding member of the Section, a recording session supergroup. He's a nice guy, and Judy Henske's favorite sideman, since 1973. Good morning, Al. It's good to hear your voice. You too. Congratulations How are you? on the nice show that you did on Judy previously. She was pleased with that. Oh, she got to hear it. it yeah, and it turned out great. What an impressive resume you have as a musician. My very first professional job was as a substitute piano player for Judy while I was a sophomore in college. And she was already a big star. She was in Time Magazine. She was coming through Cleveland, which is where I grew up. 1964, and on Christmas vacation, I come to Cleveland, and Judy Henske is playing Le Cave, which is a big 2,500-seat place, you know, the best that Cleveland had. Uh-huh. But she needed a substitute piano player, and somebody put my name in the hopper. When I played with her that night, that was it for me. I'd never seen anyone like her or heard anyone like her. And little did I know that after I graduated, she would ask me to go on tour with her. And in 67, I went on the road with her for a summer. And that's why I decided to move to L.A. instead of New York. And so I went and lived in Laurel Canyon from 67 until 70 and started my career as a session man. And little did I know, in 70, Judy got this idea to start a band called Rosebud. She called me up in Laurel Canyon and said, you want to be? in this band. The band was great, but Judy was a big deal at uh, the Troubadour and Barney's Beanery and early Laurel Canyon scene. Judy knew all the artists, Billy Al Bankston and Larry Bell and Ed Ruscha, Paul Krasner, Phil Oaks, and they would hold forth at this table at the Troubadour and Barney's Beanery, mm-hmm. you know, a table of really smart people. I would just peek in the door and watch this table of people. And you didn't go sit over there with those people if you weren't really sharp on the wit side of things. And Judy, of course, was, and she was really uh, nothing but fun. Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Ever make it here? Yes, I did. I went to Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, and I met Judy's father, Doc Henske's new wife. When Judy's mother passed away, Doc Henske married this 40-year-old nurse who had been taking care of him. And I saw a picture not too long ago, Mm -hmm. and I was struck by how much she looked like Judy. 
but I saw the town and I met some of her relatives and I got on very well with Judy's dad. He seemed to like me because I had gone to college and had a degree in economics. You know, to to square parents, if you were in the music business, you were either a communist or even worse, (laughs) an artist. (laughs) And, you know, that's... That's just the way the, the the country was back then. So the fact that you have been to Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, then makes you an official. I have been. You're an official Wisconsinite, so you're in. Good for you. Well, I, I love the town, and I heard, I've heard so much about it from Judy about going down to the river and, and her yeah. living on top of the hill. And sure. when she went back and had got the keys to the city, everybody from a high school was there. And because Judy's just recently passed away, I've had the sad task of sending things like Judy's mother sent her some beautiful spode china, but Judy's queen of the beatniks. God forbid any plates ever matched in our house. Sure. We never used any of the spode china, so now I'm packing it up to send to our daughter, who may in turn uh-huh. hopefully use it or give it to our granddaughter. And going through those things about Chippewa Falls to find her yearbook, to see that every kid in the class wrote something to Judy, in the, mm-hmm. because the classes were small enough to do that, sure. and you knew everybody. She seemed to be quite popular and was doing a lot of singing already. That, I think Chippewa Falls had a, made a great impression on her. Is it fair, Craig, to remember Judy as one of a kind? Oh, I don't think there was anyone ever like her. Her influence on so many artists was really profound. She doesn't dwell on stuff like this, but, you know, it's it's written down fact that Jim Morrison was a fan. Bette Midler literally used to listen to her play in New York and pretty much crib her patter in between songs uh-huh. to develop her act. And Janis Joplin credited Judy with being the, one of the first singers to, to be able to sing at that level with mm-hmm. that powerful mm-hmm. a voice. And Judy was also unique uh, in that she was one of the first artists to pick her own songs. Because she started recording back in 59, A&R people at record companies would just tell the female singer, we picked the songs for you, here's what you're going to do, and we got the arrangers. Well, Judy didn't like that. She was the one who decided to do High Flying Bird. She would find Hukatuka and want to do that. So she was kind of a trailblazer because it took a while before artists were able to really call their own shots. She said in our interview that she just did everything her own way, and that's why she said she wasn't uh, bigger than she was. She wasn't a star, but I think she underrates herself. Well, well, part of that was very much because she couldn't be pigeonholed. You couldn't say she's a folk singer. You couldn't say she's a jazz singer. You couldn't say she's a blues singer. Mm -hmm. Judy was comfortable in several different styles. When you listen to Loose in the World, I mean, she does uh, the Wish I Had My Old Guitar. is a fabulous folk song that's a story of Judy's life. And on that same record, she sings Blue Fortune, which is a a smoky ballad, a love song that shows how much she'd grown through both her lyrics and her vocals. These are things that she did, you know, after not recording for 28 years, she came back and made an album that critics were just nuts about. And I was real happy that I was off the road and I had a chance to finally go back to work with Judy live because that's how I started. It made wonderful sense to me. The wheel was closing in the proper way. I might tell you one story about how wonderful she is on stage. Mm. We played a small club in Berkeley called Prate and Salvage. Place was packed, and the band's already on stage waiting for Judy and I to come up. So I came up, and from the green room, there's three steps up to the back of the stage. And I got over to the piano, and now it's time for the star, Judy, to come up. And she walks up, and she catches her foot on the hem of her dress, and she fell face forward on the stage on top of her banjo. And the audience went dead silent. They could have heard a pin drop. They were just worried about Judy. 
And Judy picked herself up. She walked around then about 15 feet and got up to the mic with perfect timing. She just looked up and said, perfection is so lifeless. <laughs> and the audience just went bananas, Al. They they laughed and, and they were relieved. And I thought to myself, you know, what what an amazing entertainer. No kidding. She has the audience now and we haven't played song one. She really loved to win the audience over and give them a good time. And audiences could feel that. They knew she wasn't nervous about ad-libbing or trying something or being herself. It's hard to get used to being in this house that we lived in for 49 years in the same place. And mm. so there's a you know, a bit of a crushing loneliness uh, here. She is irreplaceable, and I'm finding stuff that she wrote that I wasn't aware of. So anything she writes on, I make it a point to save. Backs of envelopes and wonderful things, and within them are lyrics, story ideas. You remember on the interview back in October that I brought up the idea of a book. Yes, she had a book of at least two-thirds written, and our stories are so intertwined because she let me go off and have this very full career as a member of touring bands. For 25 years, I had the freedom to do that, while Judy raised our daughter Kate. Craig, uh, uh-huh. I want to thank you for sharing the time with us. It's my pleasure. Uh, I want to keep in touch because, as I said, you're grandfathered in as an official Wisconsinite, whether you like it or not. Well, I appreciate being grandfathered in as an official Wisconsinite. Thanks very much. Okay. See Thanks, you. Al. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Red and yellow and pink and green Purple and orange and blue I can sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow, sing a rainbow too. Listen with your eyes, listen with your eyes, sing everything. listening to Spectrum West on Wisconsin Public Radio. Good to be with you. The Heidi Center in Chippewa Falls is raising funds for quality track lighting for two lower gallery spaces and then later on the two upper galleries. They've been hosting exhibits dependent on overhead light and then daylight. You can participate in the effort by contacting Director Deb Johnson via email at djohnson at cvca.net. today is May 26th, and on May 26th, 51 years ago, today, 
Musicians, producers, and engineers gathered in New York to lay down the tracks for a little thing called American Pie. The guy who wrote and sang it, Don McLean, he's going to be here a little later. But first, let's meet the guy given much of the credit for not only making it happen, but making it magic. McLean credits producer Ed Freeman with having the instincts to get it right. Freeman is now a visual artist, and on a call to his Los Angeles studio, I began by noting that prior to hitting the studio back then, 51 years ago, to begin recording, there was a lot of rehearsal. Yes, there was, uh, about two weeks, just for the song American Pie. Don was rather gun-shy about using what I would call seasoned studio musicians. Originally, he wanted to record it with just guitar. That's the way he was used to playing it. So what I did, I got some players Mm -hmm. that were very proficient, but they weren't used to doing a lot of studio work. They were professional, but inexperienced in the studio. If I had used studio musicians, they would have gone in there, read a chart, done it and it would have had no feeling to it it's a fairly complicated song to play we worked it out with just the bass and drums for a couple of weeks then at the last minute on the date we added electric guitar and um, piano this has been out in public before that he and i didn't get along very well but he gives you a lot of credit for the success of all this well he does and i appreciate that There's one radio interview he did where he said, if it hadn't been for Ed Freeman, we wouldn't be talking right now. That was pretty cool. I'm curious about producers are known for having instincts, and I I wondered if those instincts popped in when you were there in May 26th of 71. Did you have any idea how special the material might be at that time? You know, I knew the song was special. I never, ever occurred to me that it would be a hit record. When we were finishing, uh, I talked to Don's manager at the time, and I said, well, that's very well and good for an album, but what are we going to do for a single? And he said, oh, we're going to release American Pie. And my reaction was, you got to be kidding. <laughs> you know, it's eight and a half minutes long. What are you, nuts? <laughs> so I, I have to say my instinct for hit record was, I think I get a zero for that. But uh, I knew it was special. I think the thing that held us together, even though we disagreed on almost everything, uh, especially the way I edited his vocals, chopping them up into small pieces and rearranging them. We were both fiercely committed to this being a great record. I knew it was great, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know it was a hit. So So. he was amenable to all the cutting and pasting? No. (laughs) He eventually gave in. He just wanted it to be very organic. He could have sung it all the way through exactly the way it is on the record. He's a very competent singer. He knows what he's doing. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to improvise the vocal. And I wanted the sort of iconic version of the vocal. Uh What he ended up doing is singing it, I think, 16 times. And I just took one piece from one take, another piece from another take. Mm -hmm. And he did not like that. But uh, since then, he's acknowledged that was the right thing to do. How were you guys paired? Did you know each other? He came to me because of a record I had done with either Tim Harden or Tom Rush. 
when I first heard his stuff, I was not particularly impressed. I thought he sounded like a lounge singer. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I had just gotten out of jail, actually. Oh, boy. <laughs> I, I was busted. Uh, a friend of mine was dealing drugs out of my apartment. And I thought, oh, well, what the hell? This is a, a gig. I'll take it. Yeah. As we were rehearsing, it started dawning on me. Oh, no, wait a minute. This is really cool. This mm -hmm. is really good. And by the time we got into the studio, I was bound and determined to make a great album. And you did. Well, thank you. Let's talk about your switch, record guy, music guy, to uh, photographer. How about that? Was Photography, it... and, and now I'm doing ceramics almost full-time. So Reinvention um, after reinvention. Well, yeah, it's um, one reason I was difficult to get along with. The reason I got into production is to learn it so that I could make a record of my own work. But I was a songwriter and singer a couple of years before I had a record contract with Capitol Records, mm -hmm. which never got fulfilled. Making records, I didn't know anything about it at the time, but I realized the guy behind the glass, he, he's important, sure. you know. So I wanted to learn his job. Then I got into record production and it seemed I was pretty good at it, but it wasn't what I set out to do. I felt like I was had given up on myself. That's not the kind of attitude or mindset that you want to have when you're making records of somebody else. So if we dug deeply enough, would we find an Ed Freeman recording? Uh, you would have to dig in my basement. Well, we can do that. Uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> There are a couple of uh, recordings out there. Buffy St. Marie recorded one of my songs. I think that's the only one that ever got out into cool. the public domain. Stunning portfolios on your website. Portfolios like uh, surfing, one would expect that of a Californian. How did you get those shots? Uh, well, I, I got them the same way I got most of my pictures, by cheating. I'm a, an okay photographer, but I'm really, really good at Photoshop. There you are. One of the first steps uh, to recovery is admitting that you're cheating. <laughs> <laughs> I had a surfer look at these pictures, and he said the perfect review. He said, well, that may not be the way surfing looks, but that's the way surfing feels. Oh, good line. Those uh, underwater shots, a cheat job too, or is that choreographed, or um, how do you shoot those? Well, it's semi-choreographed. You can only choreograph underwater photography to some extent, obviously. Most of those are shot in a friend's swimming pool. Some of them look like they're 30 feet underwater. They're actually six inches underwater. I think many photographers are interested in recording reality. And that has never been one of my concerns. No. What I'm interested in doing is creating an image, mm -hmm. however you have to go about doing it. I have a line here in my notes that says, I urge our audience to visit edfreeman.com if you like fine art gathered and enhanced by cameras in place of a paintbrush. Well, <laughs> exactly. Congratulations on all the marvelous music achievements you realized in the, that first half of your life. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. And more congratulations on pulling off what uh, some simply dream about, and that is reinventing yourself. The thing I always remark on about going from music to photography is, first of all, half the photographers I know are former musicians. Ah. It's a very, very common switch. Mm -hmm. Music goes in your ears and photography goes in your eyes, but they intersect in the brain. And the aesthetics and beauty of it are the same. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us on Wisconsin Public Radio. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Al. 
Well, Ed Freeman uh, attended the ceremony last August when Don McLean was awarded a spot on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. So they continue to be in touch every once in a while. Well, time to hear from the man himself, Don McLean. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance That I could make those people dance And maybe they'd be happy for a while But February made me shiver With every paper I'd deliver Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried when I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside the day the music died We're not going to dissect the song because that's been done a million times. I don't think it got them anywhere either. (laughs) No, and I don't expect (laughs) that. Our conversation is going to air on the day, May 26th, that the Pi song, as it's affectionately called, was actually recorded 51 years ago in New York. It's the record plant in New York City with Ed Freeman producing. I'm simply curious about that recording session, Don, that produced that gem, uh, American Pie, and the album, of Uh course. What stands Uh out to you about that experience of that day after a lot of rehearsing i hear what stands out is mostly the fact that the musicians couldn't figure out how to play the song we worked on it for weeks and uh they had not a clue i was getting very frustrated they were getting somewhat hostile because i wasn't uh, happy with what they were doing sidemen are not there to tell you what you should do they're there to try to please you and they really did work at doing that But I had to tell them, I'm sorry, but this is just not happening. Then, uh, because of Ed, he came up with a guy named Paul Griffin, a very wonderful piano player. He heard my acoustic guitar in his headphones, and I was pounding away on that Martin D28 of mine. And he said, man, I just had to jump on that thing. I knew exactly what to do. So he started playing that marvelous piano, which is a combination of, I guess, gospel and stride piano. And everybody just jumped all over it. Sadly, uh, Paul Griffin's no longer around. Well, it is sad because we've done a movie called The Day the Music Died, the story of Don McLean's American Pie. And you're going to hear a lot about this movie. And he was not there to be interviewed, and I regret that. I reached out to some other people that were involved in that session, and I was especially happy to hear from the guy who pulled it all together, Ed Freeman. And and he wanted to say a howdy. Take a listen. Hey, Don, it's Ed. Congratulations on the anniversary. Got to say, I've done a lot of things in my life that I'm happy with, but one of the things I'm most happy with is having had the opportunity and the honor to work with you on something that's an essential part of 20th century American culture. I hope you're doing well, and um, we will talk. There you go. Good guy. Yes, Ed is a very talented man. He has a lot of uh, empathy uh, toward music. I I chose Ed. He did an album uh, with Tim Harden, who was one of my favorites, an album called The Bird on the Wire, and 
I knew Tim Harden's work and I knew his personal history and I was amazed he was able to get such a beautiful record out of this guy who was very troubled with heroin and everything else. Mm -hmm. And um, I heard that record and I thought, oh boy, this is the guy for me. I just want to, I, I, there's magic, you know. And you'll see in the movie in the beginning, he said, yeah, I might, he said, I'm not so sure I want to work with Don McLean. I don't think he has that much talent, you know, and blah, blah, blah. So this is a kind of uphill situation I was in. I worked with him and eventually he began to see what it was I was going for. He pointed out that it was your manager at the time who informed him American Pie would be released as the single and he thought that was a little wacky he didn't think a long song would would be able to do anything well what they did was they knocked it down to three minutes just bang just like that they bought the whole record company which was meteorites records and then they knocked down the single to three minutes put it out and went to number one so fast it was unbelievable in other words just started out with bye bye miss american pie you know and then a verse the vet and then a bunch of bye byes at the end and that was number one ah. And previously, I had put out an album called Tapestry. People don't focus enough on that in determining how it was that I got established. But I was an underground radio, FM radio favorite uh, with that album. People just loved it. So they began, of course, playing the American Pie album. And when fans on FM heard the long version, they called the radio stations the AM stations that they didn't really listen to, unless it was a Beatles song or something on there they liked. Yeah. and said, hey, that's not the record, this is the record. So they brought the album into the studio, the AM studio, and played the album cut as the hit. And that's how the eight-and-a-half-minute version got yeah. to be uh, number one. Yeah, it's weird. There's a lot of stories behind everything yeah. concerning yeah, yeah. this song. Glad you shared that. June 19th, Big Top Chautauqua. You've been there before, haven't you? Twice or three times before. I love stuff like that. Ten cool tent shows and i love seeing outdoors i love the summer i i never forget the summers i spent with pete seeger uh, when we were singing with the hudson river sloop and we'd be outdoors you know on the hudson we would have uh, cut a trail through the woods and put a little stage up and four or five hundred people would find their way down to the riverside and we'd oh lord those were those were the great days you yeah. know because it was everybody was young and everybody was enthusiastic and it was just well, uh, yeah. a, a gift a gift to me to have done that. Now they're old and enthusiastic, aren't they? Hmm? <laughs> well, I don't know if they're breathing, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so this 50th birthday tour, what's on, what's on stage? How many pieces do you travel with? I have a four-piece band. Uh, I have bass, drums, guitar, and piano. And my piano player, Tony Migliori, uh, also plays uh, synthesizer. And, of course, my guitar is wired up so we're really a five piece group and um we um sound like the records you know if okay. i do vincent or if i sit down sometime i mean i have a, a very large repertoire i have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tracks that i've recorded that are available now you know on on the internet so mm -hmm. i do new songs and old songs but i of course do all the ones that i'm statutorily required <laughs> to do <laughs> Yeah. And I'm happy to do it. Well, we're looking forward to having you back in Wisconsin. Congratulations, uh, Don, on the anniversary. Thanks for giving America another anthem over the years. And um, Thank you. The way things are today, we'll have to work on figuring out what the ingredients are to a, to a true American pie and then hope it turns out. What do you think? Thank you. I like talking to you. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. I met a girl who sang the blues And I asked her for some happy news but she just smiled and turned away 
I went down to the sacred store where I'd heard the music years before. But the man there said the music wouldn't play. And in the streets the children screamed, the lovers cried, and the poets dreamed. But not a word was spoken. The church bells all were broken, and the three men I admire most—the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost—they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died, and they were singing bye-bye, Miss America. I drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, "This'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die." They were singing, "Bye bye, Miss American Pie." Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye, singing, "This'll be the day that I Nice to get all that background, don't you think? Interesting guys. Good guys. Hey, got to get some memos in here. It's a big weekend at the Silverdome near Nielsville. The 2022 Spring Blues Party is uh, Friday night. Howard Lidke and Blue Max. Special guest Aaron Kaplan, 5 to 7. Uh, actually, no, it's uh, doors open at 5. Music starts at 7. Then Saturday, hey, it's an old-time country dance with the Rhythm Playboys, Mary Coutrefillo and Trevor McSpadden. That's from 1 to 5. Saturday evening, Lil Ed and the Blues Imperials and special guests Reverend Raven and the Chain Smoking Altar Boys. Doors at 5, show at 7. The community is invited to celebrate the completion of the nearly 400-square-foot mural on the UW Stout Applied Arts Building at an unveiling ceremony from 1 to 2.30 p.m. next Thursday, June 2nd. Don't forget, also, the mural painting workshop coming to Eau Claire, the, uh, yeah, the painting project, a two-part workshop. you got to register by the end of May. Email publicpaintingproject at gmail.com. Next week, a peek at the new Pablo Center season, the Banbury Art Crawl, the Children's Theater Next Production, and a special art project. Thanks to Rick and Kate for the plugs, and thank you all for hanging with us. You can catch an archived version at WPR.org, and there are podcasts floating around out there, too. I'm Al Ross. Thank you. See you next week. ¶¶